Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 17th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the sexual exploitation of an injured worker by her treating physician caused a new compensable injury. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Applied Materials versus the WCAB. The injured worker, whose name was withheld in the case for privacy reasons, was employed by Applied Materials from 1996 until 2008. During that time, she claimed three industrial injuries, a specific injury to her neck and right upper extremity in 2001, a specific injury to her neck and both upper extremities in 2005, and then a cumulative trauma injury to her neck, both upper extremities, and psyche ending on her last day worked in January 2008. The worker later claimed that in 2013, she was sexually exploited by Dr. John Massey, who's an anesthesiologist and pain specialist, the physician primarily responsible for the treatment of her industrial injuries after 2007. At the time, Dr. Massey was a member of the Bay Area Pain and Wellness Clinic. His license has since been revoked by the California Medical Board for this sexual misconduct. She claimed that he touched her inappropriately on multiple occasions at his clinic and had sexual intercourse with her five times in her home. As a result of the doctor's alleged misconduct, she claimed that she suffered a further injury to her psyche and was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. The worker claimed her PTSD was industrial as a compensable consequence of the medical treatment her employer provided for all three of her industrial injuries. Arrowwood Indemnity Company was the worker's comp carrier for the 2001 specific, and XL Specialty Insurance Company, as administered by Corvell, was the worker's compensation carrier for both the 2005 specific and 2008's continuous trauma. Both insurers contended that the worker's psychiatric injury resulting from her sexual exploitation by Dr. Massey was not industrial because it was a result of a consensual sexual relationship and because it occurred at her home. The work comp judge found that all of the worker's injury claims were industrial and awarded 100% permanent disability based on her PTSD alone, with no apportionment. On reconsideration, the WCAB amended the amount of the weekly TD and PD rates as recommended by the work comp judge, but otherwise affirmed the work comp judge's findings and award. The Court of Appeal affirmed the finding of psychiatric injury resulting from the sexual exploitation by Dr. Massey, but rejected the findings of total disability. On the issue of industrial causation, the Court of Appeal rejected the contention that the sexual conduct care was consensual, since, as a matter of law, a patient cannot consent to sexual contact with his or her physician as well as their contention that the PTSD is not compensable under the rules governing industrial injuries arising out of assaults by third parties. 
But the Court of Appeal did conclude that the 100% PD award must be annulled because it was based on an incorrect legal theory, the so-called alternative path theory that was rejected in the Fitzpatrick case. And the worker's evidence was otherwise insufficient to rebut the scheduled rating for her psychiatric disability. C's Candy secured a victory when the California Court of Appeals rejected a proposed statewide employment class action based on alleged meal and rest period violations. The lead plaintiff, Debbie Salazar, alleged claims for unpaid overtime, unpaid minimum wages, failure to provide rest and meal periods, failure to provide wage statements, and to maintain payroll records, failure to timely pay wages on termination, and unfair and unlawful business practices. Salazar brought certification of two classes, a single staffing class, and a meal break class. Salazar acknowledged that C's official meal break policy complied with California law. However, Salazar's theory was that despite that policy, C's consistent practice was to deny second meal periods when shifts exceeded 10 hours as a result of how they used a scheduling form to calculate workers' pay. In opposition to the motion, C's argued that C's did not rely only on the scheduling form to provide second meal breaks, but also provided employees with training on its policies and required its shop managers to implement those policies. In support of its opposition, C's submitted declarations from 55 employees, including both managers and shop employees. The managers testified generally about C's policy of providing a second meal break for shifts over 10 hours. Most of the employee declarants testified that they were aware of the policy, and more than half of the employee declarants had work shifts longer than 10 hours, and almost all of these testified that they took second meal breaks during such shifts at least some of the time. Four employees testified that they occasionally chose not to take a second meal break so that they could leave work earlier or get overtime pay. Based upon this record, the trial court denied certification of the meal break class action on two grounds. First, the court found that Salazar had failed to show that she could prove through common evidence that C's had a consistent practice to deny second meal breaks. Secondly, the trial court found that Salazar's proposed trial plan was inadequate to manage these individual issues. And the Court of Appeal affirmed denial of class certification in the published case of Salazar v. C's Candy. Class actions are authorized when the question is one of a common or general interest of many persons, or when the parties are numerous and it is impracticable to bring them all before the court. To certify a class, the party advocating class treatment must demonstrate that the existence of an ascertainable and sufficiently numerous class, a well-defined community of interest, and substantial benefits from certification 
that render proceedings as a class superior to the alternatives. The community of interest factor, in turn, has three requirements. One, common questions of fact or law that predominate over individual issues. Two, class representatives with claims or defenses typical of the class. And three, class representatives who can adequately represent the class. Class certification is generally inappropriate if liability can be established only through individual proof. When common issues predominate over individual issues, a class should not be certified if there is no way to manage the remaining individual issues fairly and efficiently. Using these rules, under the substantial evidence standard, the Court of Appeal must credit the trial court's reasonable inferences, even if a competing inference could be drawn. And now our crime report. Cornerstone Care Incorporated operates as Cornerstone Homes at three South Orange County locations in Laguna Hills. The assisted living facilities provide comprehensive services, short and long-term care, hospice care, and other services. A U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division investigation found that Cornerstone Care violated the Fair Labor Standards Act when they charged workers for meals they failed to provide and made payroll deductions for lodging but provided none. Instead, the workers slept in facilities, kitchens, and living rooms. They failed to pay workers for time spent in mandatory trainings on their days off and failed to record or pay for time employees work during interrupted breaks. The employer's actions led to FLSA overtime violations and to the department's recovery of $159,000 in back wages for 13 employees. And in regulatory news, the CDC posted an update suggesting that fully vaccinated people no longer need to wear a mask or physically distance in any setting. The exceptions were required by federal law, state, local, tribal, or territorial law, rules and regulations including local businesses, and workplace guidance. The CDC update also indicates that fully vaccinated people can refrain from testing following a known exposure unless they are residents or employees of a correctional or detention facility or a homeless shelter. Governor Gavin Newsom suggested in a subsequent television interview that California will do away with its mask mandate in favor of recommendations around June 15th the state's target date for ending COVID-19 restrictions on businesses. However, a report in Business Insurance says that employers are frustrated and confused by conflicting instructions from other sources. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration guidelines still call for indoor mask wearing. And OSHA is getting ready to release a national emergency temporary standard that experts say could echo the guidelines already in place and come with fines for non-complying employers. Another issue is employees who do not understand why the rules remain when they have been vaccinated. And some say that those employees protesting masks are only going to get louder.
and the issue has led to frustration, especially for employers that operate in multiple states. Some states have completely lifted all restrictions, and other states still have a fair amount of their restrictions in place. The conflicting messages are leading to morale issues among employees, and some employers have reported that the single greatest compliance challenge they have faced during the pandemic has been trying to comply with the impossible patchwork of competing and contradicting mandates from local and state health departments, governor's executive orders, state occupational safety and health plan emergency temporary standards, and much more. A proposed new law in California, Senate Bill 335, seeks to compress the time for investigating a reported occupational injury or illness from 90 days to just 45 days, while increasing the employer's liability for medical treatment benefits during the investigation period from $10,000 to $17,000. And SB 335 proposes a return to pre-reform delay penalties that allowed non-discretionary, uncapped, and and compounded penalties. Under these old rules, penalty penalty amounts were tied to the entire amount of a particular benefit that had been paid out. In mature cases with large medical treatment or indemnity costs, 10% of the specie of benefits could reach tens of thousands of dollars for a single penalty. The California Workers' Compensation Institute just prepared and published a comprehensive analysis of this proposed law. It concluded that it is unlikely that claims adjusters can unilaterally expedite the investigation process without unintended consequences. Claims investigation is a complex process requiring documentation from multiple sources, few of which are within the control of the claims adjuster. Claims adjusters can only begin an investigation upon notification of a claimed injury from an injured worker, their employer, or an attorney. The number of days between the date of injury and the employer's notification can be influenced by several factors, including the type of injury or illness, the employee's occupation, when and where the injury occurred, and whether or not there were witnesses. One of the more significant confounding factors that can delay timely reporting is California's relatively unique high rate of cumulative trauma claims. These CT claims are estimated to account for up to one out of every six indemnity claims. The analysis of the data by CWCI authors shows that at 90 days following employer notification, more than 97% of all reported claims have a compensability decision. But at 45 days, only 85.2% of all claims have been accepted or rejected, a relative difference of 13%. The analysis also shows that at 45 days, 63% of claims that are ultimately denied remain under investigation. Following the employer's notification of an injury, the average cost of medical treatment reached $735 at 45 days and $1,400 at 90 days. 
In 1.4% of these claims, the $10,000 limit is met or exceeded during the 90-day investigation period. While in 0.6% of the claims, the $10,000 limit is met or exceeded within 45 days. Thus, the CWCI authors concluded that decreasing the investigation period to 45 days would actually reduce access to medical treatment and would likely increase the number of provisional denials. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California has released its September 1, 2021 Experience Modification Estimator. This will allow insurers, agents, and brokers to help policyholders understand how payroll and claims experience will affect the computation of their September 1, 2021 and later experience modification. The use of the WCIRB September 1, 2021 experience modification estimator is free of charge and available to the public on its website. By entering policyholders' specific payroll, classification, and claims information into the estimator, users can obtain an estimated XMOD using approved September 1 values, including expected loss rates, D ratios, and primary thresholds that vary by employer size. The estimator spreadsheet format makes it easy for users to view and simply copy and paste data into the application, and then view print or save detailed estimated XMOD information based on that data. The September 1, 2021 estimator was updated with the approved experience rating values after the insurance commissioner issued a decision on the WCARB regulatory filing. The estimator is for informational purposes only and results are approximations based on the information entered. The estimator does not produce WCIRB published XMODs. For more information and helpful tips on how to use the estimator, go to the WCIRB Experience Modification Estimators page. The National Council on Compensation Insurance revealed in-depth data on the performance of the U.S. workers' compensation system in 2020. Because of job losses and shrinking payrolls during the pandemic recession, net written premium dropped 10% to $42 billion in 2020. However, private insurers posted a profitable calendar year combined ratio of 87%, the fourth straight year within, with a combined ratio below 90 for workers' compensation insurance. The president and CEO of NCCI said that the pandemic was the moment to rise to the challenge and the workers' compensation system did so with integrity. Other key details included in an NCCI state-of-the-line report shows that the reserve position for private insurers remains strong, growing to a redundancy of $14 billion as of year-end 2020. Workers hurt by COVID-19 made more than 45,000 claims in 2020, with more than 95% of those claims costing less than $10,000. Carriers reported $260 million in total COVID-19 incurred losses in 2020. 
hardest hit were workers in nursing homes, hospitals, clinics, and other healthcare settings, along with first responders, which altogether accounted for 75% of the claims. To date, the costliest 1% of COVID-19 claims account for 60% of COVID-19 loss dollars. Excluding COVID-19 claims, claim frequency decreased 7% in 2020, continuing the long-term lost time claim frequency decline. While indemnity claim severity is expected to increase 3% in 2020, the average cost of the medical portion of a lost time claim is expected to change between plus or minus 2%. A series of issues remain on the organization's watch list, including the uncertainty of how workers with long-haul symptoms will fare and how quickly the recovery will drive an increase in payrolls and workers' compensation premiums. The Division of Workers' Compensation has issued a notice of conference call public hearing for a proposed evidence-based update to the medical treatment utilization schedule. The conference call is scheduled for Friday, June 11th at 10 a.m. Members of the public may review and comment on the proposed updates. Written comments must be submitted no later than June 11. Please see the proposed regulation page for directions for submitting written comments. The proposed evidence-based update to the MTUS incorporate by reference the latest published guideline from the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine for the Workplace Mental Health Guideline Anxiety Disorders. DWC is required under the Labor Code to have a 30-day public comment period, hold a public hearing, respond to all the comments received during the public comment period, and publish the order adopting the updated online. The Workers' Compensation Research Institute released a new study, Hospital Outpatient Payment Index, Interstate Variations and Policy Analysis, 10th edition, which compares hospital payments for a group of common. The study provides meaningful comparisons of hospital outpatient payments across states, as well as hospital payment trends in relation to reforms of hospital outpatient fee regulations. Hospital payments per outpatient surgical episode in states with Percent of charge-based fee regulations were 73 to 209% higher than the median of the study states with fixed amount fee schedules. In states with no fee schedules, they were 16 to 130% higher. Variation between average workers' compensation payments and Medicare rates for a common group of procedures across states ranged from a low of 38% below Medicare in Nevada to a high of 502% above Medicare in Alabama. The study also provides an analysis of major policy changes in states with recent fee schedule reforms. The study covers 36 large states that represent 88% of the workers' compensation benefits paid in the United States. These states included California. 
For more information about this report or to download a copy, please visit the WCRI website. And in medical news, the Travelers Companies announced the results of the Travelers Mental Wellness Checkup, a national survey of 2,000 employed adults across more than 10 industries. Most respondents reported experiencing some type of negative effect on their mental health since the pandemic began last year. 59% have worried about losing a loved one. 50% have suffered from loneliness and 37% said their level of personal stress has worsened. However, respondents have remained resilient as most reported that their mental state appears to be recovering, with 73% describing their current mental health as excellent or good. This is up from 67% in the early months of the pandemic. The vice president and chief medical director at Travelers said that understanding an employee's mental health plays an important role in managing workplace injuries. The pandemic has likely affected the many psychosocial factors that can complicate the healing process and delay the time it takes to recover from a physical injury. He said that it is encouraging to see workers' mental health trending back toward pre-pandemic levels, because when employees are in a good mental state, they are safer, more productive, and can often recuperate quicker if they do get hurt. Positivity and the use of coping mechanisms are likely contributing to the improving outlooks. When asked to name any silver lining they experienced during the pandemic, most employed adults identified at least one of these factors, having a job, saving money, working remotely, ability to multitask between personal and professional responsibilities, picking up a new hobby, not commuting, and connecting with others virtually. Exercise and spending time with family were the top ways that respondents described managing loneliness and stress over the last year, followed by using social media, spending time with pets, and reaching out to friends or co-workers. Coping strategies varied somewhat by age group. Baby boomers were more likely to keep in touch with others, while millennials were more likely to turn to, school, to social media or a new hobby. The survey also found a correlation between employer-provided resources and workers' mental health. 30% of respondents who believe their employer has provided ample mental health resources also reported that their ability to manage stress improved during the pandemic, and one-third noted that loyalty to their employer increased. Meanwhile, 42% of workers who feel their employer has not provided enough mental health support said their ability to manage stress worsened during the pandemic and 29% said loyalty to their employer decreased. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports. 
using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.